this is the time when there's blood in the streets and everybody's freaking out to maintain cool heads and say, business as usual, let's cut stupid shit that obviously never should have been started. Let's get rid of business arms that have no potential of major upside. And let's focus in on innovation so when this thing is over, we're in a much better position to own the entire ecosystem. That was infamous Taylor Ryan. You may recognize Taylor from his posts on the governance forum through the marketing DAO, or most recently, through his beat for the Near Digital Collective. I really enjoyed this episode because Taylor doesn't hold back any punches. And I think it's important to give the man a mic and really understand where he's coming from. On this one, as usual, we go deep and we talk everything about marketing, product growth, personal growth, amongst many, many others. Just one quick note, this podcast was recorded on July 18th. It's really interesting to me to see how much the ecosystem has evolved regarding the nearest now marketing movement, NDC, and more. Without further ado, I'll let you enjoy this wild conversation with Taylor Ryan. See ya! Hello friends, welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, I am thrilled to have with me Taylor Ryan. Taylor is the founder of a marketing agency in Denmark, and he specializes in a bunch of things we'll be covering today, from digital marketing to growth hacking. I'll just let him introduce himself. Welcome, Taylor. Hey, thanks for having me. It's super exciting to be here. And yeah, I'm a bit of a fanboy. I've listened to a few of your things and, you know, working on some stuff within the marketing DAO. I'm curious what kind of goes into your mindset. So I'm, I'm stoked for this conversation. A little about me, six-time startup founder, originally from Washington, D.C., but live in Copenhagen, Denmark. I've been building lots of things for quite some time. More recently, Lair 3 Ventures and Near Nordic, which is aimed at getting Web3 dApps that are ethical and sustainable, funded, built, and supported. That is amazing. There's so much to unpack there, but naturally, you've picked the selfish, the psychopathic me. I'm curious, which episodes have you listened to? Which ones have you enjoyed? Is there anything that captures your curiosity? Is there a trend in common from previous guests? From the most recent conversation that you had with Lorraine, I think there's so many interesting angles that come from your experiences within Web3, but you also move so fast and things bounce around in so many different ways. More recently, that was the one that I picked up on. That is a good one. I, I really enjoy that one. I was Podcasts always come to an end, which is really sad for me because I feel like I could easily keep going, but people have busy days. So that one was a podcast where, yeah, Lorraine was like, look, I've got a heart limit. <laughs> it's a busy, busy world when you have a family and full-time work. Totally. Many gigs. I'm really happy to have you here. <laughs> Can I just provide some context for the audience? So normally... I send people a calendar so they can book a time of their convenience. Living in Australia, it's not easy to find a time that works for everyone. I'm very flexible. And there was a question there for people to provide any resources for things that they'd like me to read so we can have a more in-depth, thoughtful conversation. <laughs> Taylor sent me not one, not two, but three links to over a hundred pages self-referencing <laughs> presentations and podcast interviews like there was so much material there so i thought this is crazy <laughs> but also it is bound to be a really good interview so what i think we'll do is 
I'll let you, yeah, take it where you want to go. I'm certainly sure. very interested in like the growth hacking concepts and like digital marketing in the crypto world because I think that those are two areas that we could really need. But you seem to be very well uh, versed on many, many topics. So I'm more than happy to just hand over the mic and we can all match. Oh, that's so cool. Okay, cool. Well, let's first go into what you just brought up to provide a bit more context and also some of the growth hacks behind what led to that. So one of the easiest ways for you as an entrepreneur and an individual or somebody that's running a marketing team, whatever the case is, to get more exposure for your brand is to do public speaking. So that's keynotes, workshops, panels, but additionally podcasts, webinars, those types of things. And with no offense whatsoever, there are tons of them out there. There are thousands, right? So you could potentially systematize everything in order to get an appearance per day if you really wanted to, or just one a week. I have a team internally for at least the last year that focuses purely on building out our outreach to then be able to get me either as a speaker at a conference or involved in lots of different podcasts, webinars, etc. And one of the easiest ways to do that is understanding the basic parts of what is the process of starting as a speaker, but also what do they want to see on their side? It's like branding 101 is what does your customer really want? And in this case, if they're a podcast organizer or an event program manager, whatever the case is, they want to see that you've done lots of stuff. They want to see that you've been around the merry-go-round a few times. So I have a presentation list that includes the name of the event, the date, the event type, the organization description. And then in many cases, I would also have some interns that were doing video production for me. So we would have a teaser or promo, a real full-length video, snippets, cut-ups, and then maybe like a highlight reel from each of the events. And over just the last four years, I've been a part of over 120 plus speaking events, but that doesn't include podcasts and, and all these other crazy things or write-ups or anything like that. So I have my awesome kind of presentation list and I'm happy to screenshot that and shoot that around. The other question that they often ask is, what do you speak about? So I have all of the topics uh, in a giant Google Doc that is organized with a nice table of content. So if somebody's like, well, we only do SaaS, and it's like, got you covered. Or we only want to focus on blockchain. It's like, well, that's my favorite. Let's dance. Or maybe it's something very specific, very niche. Then yeah, I got you covered too. And the last one is probably one of my favorite hacks and techniques, which is People love social proof. Social proof comes in many different forms. The concept is, let's say that you're going down the main promenade of a new city and you have let, like restaurants that look really nice on your left and on your right. Inherently, psychologically, if we see a bunch of people sitting at the restaurant on the right and nobody's sitting at the restaurant on the left, we will veer towards the right because we assume that because lots of people are sitting at it, the food must be better. And the reality is there is no truth to that. The food on the left isn't poison either. It's just more people sat down. It looked like it was more interesting for more people and it was validated. Therefore, we went there. We veered right. It's the same thing with doing lots of presentations. So I often offer up slides at the end of my presentation. I'm like, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'll give you all the slides and I move real fast. So when people connect with me, they're like, hey, can I get those slides? Of course you can, but I need you to comment on my post with something that you learned from the presentation. And once I see that comment, then I'll hook you up. So I get sneaky, 50 pages sneaky. worth. Yeah, that's the game though. You know, like what, how can I rinse, reuse, repurpose 
effort and work that I've already done. And that turns into what looks like miles of testimonials of people having very positive experiences with either my keynotes or whatever the case is. Long story short, I think if more people tried to infuse these types of systems into their daily routines, I, I think it'd be a very competitive environment. And I'm kind of glad most people don't. It does work for me. There's so many things that I love. And the first one is that if I had to summarize your framework, first, you have to show people that you've done it. Second, you have to show people what you can do going forward. And third, you have to show people that what you've done in the past and what you're promising to do in the future is going to be well received. And I love it because it's a very simple framework. But even if we take it back to something that we do on a weekly basis, we assess marketing DAO applications. So many people are lacking on at least one of these three things. Some projects, we just don't have visibility into what they've done in the past. And this is not to say that they haven't done things. It's just that maybe the format of the proposals doesn't allow them or doesn't encourage them to really showcase the work that they've done. And this is a big problem, especially with projects that have been going around for a long time, because we're like, what do these guys do? The second one is more important. What can you do going forward? And I really like this one because this may be a similar trend from the podcast with Lorraine and in my personal life. People reinvent themselves. Their interests yep. change. You pick up new skills. Going forward, it is really up to you to propose what you want to do or what you can do. So you have to be very explicit about that. Some people may be stuck in a hole and they really have to like smash through. And the third one I love because you have to close the loop. You know, I always call it proxy validation. Most of the people don't have the time to do the research it takes to make an objective decision. We all like to think we're objective and rational, but in reality, we look at people that we think have done the research and we know that they are smart or trustworthy and we just validate through them. So your system is a very good one. I will, I'll consider in implementing it. <laughs> And maybe it's that a, takes me to my next point. Some people listening, if they are from the crypto world, they may be like, well, this is a dirty marketer. He's a sleazy salesperson. And not to be condescending, but one thing is definitely true. The crypto world does not have processes or systems in the same way that the traditional world does. So I'd love to hear more about your views on this, like, what do you see as the lay of the land and maybe what sort of work do you do? And just for the records, before I forget, the second thing I wanted to ask is who should be pursuing all this media attention? Because I'm sure that Ilya and Marik have a team that are getting them spots to speak everywhere. So when is it appropriate to start getting that profile? Is it founders? Is it developers? Is it just anyone from the community? That's a two-part question. That I'll probably listen nice. to the recording and be like, damn it, I forgot about the second one. <laughs> no, it's all good. There's lots to unpack. So uh, the first thing that I think I could address very easily is related to some of the reflections that you mentioned about the marketing DAO, but I think it's just relevant across anything that you set your mind to doing. And a lot of people will begin at absolute zero. So let's say, I don't know, uh, my goal is to make a, a social media post. How, and the, by the way, can we use colorful language or is this like a PG? Kind of? I expect you to. <laughs> this is an okay. adult podcast. There you go. Fair enough. Express <clears throat> ourselves fully. 
Good. I figured rather than dance around the words, I can just use them. So most people are fucking awful at what they do. And it's not necessarily their fault. They're just attempting from absolute zero. It's like trying to become a classical musician without ever hearing music or learning how to dance or trying to dance, having never actually seen a person physically move with rhythm. It's impossible to create something amazing if you don't have the beginnings or the foundations worked out. And I find, especially in Web3, a lot of people have skipped that. So as somebody that classically understands, like, this is good UI, UX, this is how you would actually push messaging out, this is how you automate and scale, it's just a, a shit salad. And unfortunately, shit salads really don't scale up well. So if you look at the way that systems are supposed to be built, like let's just take food, like totally abstract away from like Web3 and crypto. The goal with food processing and building lots of, let's say, potato chips would be you define the outcome. We want crispy Pringles potato chips, right? And we want to work our way backwards because if Lay's had a human hand or Pringles had a human hand involved with every single potato chip, we would never be able to know what they tasted like because they're just elements of scale would never actually climb out of you know the, the rudimentary level that it was in. I tend to collect all the assets. So for, I guess, food, it would be ingredients and then put together the best steps that I think would make sense, assemble, test, and then go back and try to continue to smooth out my systems. If you don't have that level of thinking, it's going to be really challenging to figure out what worked, why it worked, and what areas are actually going to be more successful than the others. This is the basis for the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. So 80% of your efforts will get 20% of your results, or 20% of your results are going to take 80% of the efforts. Meaning there are special channels and little things that you can do that are going to be far more valuable, especially in the early days when you're launching a new product. And this is one of the things that a lot of the bigger companies have as an advantage. Dude, everybody's fucking heard of Nier. And if they haven't, then they're not in the space. So to get the founders or the CEO of the company to speak, people are like, please. Yeah, like you're, you're validating my organization, my conference. Like I need you here. But for the little players that are just trying to get out of the gates, there's a bit more hustle involved. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a, an easy road, even though you might be brilliant within your space. And I think one of the bigger challenges that's still a problem within the space is the loudest voices tend to get the most attention, which makes sense, but that doesn't always mean it's the best projects. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the world we live in, though. I, I didn't invent the rules. I just know how to play the game. I can't code. I'm going to make money somehow, but I'm happy to pass the mic every once in a while. <laughs> I really like your framing because it is spot on. You're able to convey it in a very clear way as an outsider, quote unquote. And I'm not saying that you're an outsider yeah. from crypto. I'm just saying that you've got a real life job that keeps you in check every day. And I've got a theory. I think I know what part of the problem may be. And I noticed this back in 2018 with the ICOs. Mm. The problem in crypto is that we don't have long-term thinking. And as you mentioned, we don't really have a way of measuring what works and why. Because effort and output, especially like reward, is completely decoupled. We got used to people launching 
piece of shit projects that are a copy paste from someone else's code, terrible UI, not a single user, absolutely no reason for existing, token that is liquid and the team dumps on the first 14-year-old that enters the internet. That was a problem in 2018 and it's still a problem today. The thing is that we rebranded it today. Now we call it NFTs. If you have something that you can't answer the question, what problem are you trying to solve? Who is meant to use this? Why? Like, what is the team doing with the $800,000 that they raised? I mean, kudos to them. Anyone that can sell art online deserves the money. But they are completely mismanaging the expectations of the people buying. And we've just got many problems there. So anyway, to take it back to marketing, I do feel like in the traditional world, it's much slower in a weird way because it's still really fast paced, but you do face the void, the silence. When you do something that doesn't work, you know it. (laughs) And when something is working, you just want to find the fastest pattern that you can to replicate it. Because funding is tight. You know that without the right metrics, you're not going to get the next round of funding. Your money is not multiplying in a magic money sense. You know exactly how many months of runway you have. And you've got real users. Either they don't exist and you have to go out there and get them, or they're giving you feedback or or you see them drop off, which is heartbreaking. So I feel like Near really puts us in a position that is unique for several reasons. The first one is, We are creating core infrastructure that will enable people to create real businesses online in a web three open web way. Totally. Blockchains can do that. And if we start with that assumption, we have to understand that then the challenges for us as marketers, communicators, content creators, et cetera, are much higher because we can't copy what other people have done in other blockchains. And we really have to say, look, we understand that our NFTs are not pumping but we're here trying to build a competitor to bloody Spotify or Amazon or whatever big brain entrepreneur comes into the space. That's the task at hand. So anyway, throwing it back to you in terms of digital marketing and growth hacking. Nice friend, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me jump on some of the points because you bring up some really interesting stuff, especially because it's the early days of Web3 in general. And there are so many bad actors in this space right now. It's not necessarily because the space breeds this type of sketchball fucking scumbag that basically can get a bunch of people to throw in money on a project and yank it out at its peak in order to profit. Like that is one of the weirdest byproducts of this thing. And it's wildly upsetting, super frustrating because it, it more or less makes us or people that do what I do look the same. I, I take major issue with those scumbags because the reality is you get burned by one or two of these projects and you may never come back to the industry. And that's not what this is about. you know. And if, if you blamed everybody for getting into get, get rich quick schemes, I think you'd never see technology move forward. I was around during the late 2000s and that was when I was working on a mobile app development firm. And when everybody and their mom thought they needed a mobile app to do everything, it was a great time to be building apps. And obviously we've kind of come over the hill and we understand that maybe you don't necessarily need an app for every single thing. And I think we're going to find that within Web3, some of the DeFi projects that 
are just giving unreasonable yields off of either liquidity pools or yield farming are not necessarily anything better than a fucking Ponzi scheme, which is a little scary to say. But you're also seeing these NFT projects that have absolutely no utility built in. And that's scary because it's like there's genuine technology here that can benefit the entire world if done and implemented properly in the right industries. But we're focusing on JPEGs of apes. Like it, it does bother me a bit. And obviously the average consumer has a skewed understanding because enough news stories get out there where people are like, yeah, but crypto and uh, Bitcoin, it's bad for the world. It's like, we're talking about proof of work or proof of stake. You have no idea. You've just come into a conversation like a child and want to know what's going on. Like, please like dig into some of this stuff before you just immediately blanket statement. All of this is a scam and it's trash. Yeah, I'm passionate. Uh, <laughs> oh, dude, we're at fire here. I, what, what time? Is yeah, it? right. It's uh, nine twenty-four a.m. Nice. Just before I continue my rant, it's Monday afternoon here, almost six p.m., and I woke up like a beast. Twelve hours of sleep. I really needed them, and I was like, the mind tells the body what to do. I went for a ten k run. It was raining on. You. It was freezing. I was like, yeah. <laughs> my chest was hurting. I was like, I might have to call a fucking ambulance, but I'm doing this. Because <laughs> I was doing it. I was doing freaking rounds before I went overseas. And then I got really fat traveling. Well, anyway, <laughs> one of the stories, I got back and I'm like, oh, I'm moving to Sydney tomorrow. I've got no food in the house. I went to a cafe. I demolished like two brunches. Definitely got all the calories back. And then I came back home to sleep. <laughs> It's always a balance. Everything in excess and moderation. <laughs> so I guess I'm trying to say is I'm well rested. I am undeterred. I'm moisturized and we shall keep going. Now there's, just to go back to your point, I'm very passionate about the wrong actors and I don't really hold back in calling them out because we should see crypto networks as a city or a country. And if you go to Brazil, and on day one, you get robbed at gunpoint, and on day two, you get punched in the face for no reason. Somebody just thought it was fun because you were walking down the street. And on day four, you get raped. Well, guess what? You're not going back to that place. <laughs> by the way, this podcast sponsored by Tourism of Brazil. Like, <laughs> I should not have mentioned Brazil, uh, but it was close enough to a place that I was thinking. And okay. the truth is, people do go to places where they feel safe where they feel like they can be successful where they can connect with like-minded people and from the outside people get usually extreme often the wrong impression and actually i'll use this as an opportunity to say that mexico is one of the safest places that i feel like i've been i felt way safer mm -hmm. in mexico city than in san francisco so kudos to mexico i think that if we use that analogy i would invite all the early citizens of the nearverse to be thoughtful about what they do and to understand that everything they do can have an impact on someone. If yeah. you seem mildly articulate and smart and passionate about what you're doing, you may as well just onboard someone and they'll trust you. You know, you can hold them by the hand and take them on the near journey and then they'll be well-placed to do it for someone else. And that's how you get your bloody coins to $100 each. We have to do the work. But if you go out there and you have short-term thinking and are just like, look, fuck everything. How can I get 500K by the end of the year? Because I just want to buy a boat or whatever. <laughs> That's not good. You're definitely destroying 
a lot more value than what you're taking. And I don't know, I mean, I do know why. During the bull markets, nobody wants to think about these challenges, but it is important that we do, you know, I've had a few tweets where I'm like, activating ecosystem, immune response. Yeah. A lot of things at BookSauce, definitely do your best to keep improving. Yeah, let's make sure that the ecosystem stays healthy, especially because we've got technology here that it's worth preserving. Like if you just want to be a bit of a shady cunt, just go to other ecosystems. There's money there. <laughs> they won't be there in a few years' time. You might as well make money there. I agree with you. I, I, there was something that kind of flashed in the back of my head, and it's something that I've had numerous talks with other growth hackers that are in this space. And growth hacking in general has a negative connotation, has the word hacking in it. Most people think of it as shady marketing at best. And I think to some degree, you have to have some moral flexibility, especially in the Web3 space, in order to carry your project over into non-traditional channels, but also into fields of lots of attention. This is why a lot of PR does so well, but this is also why shilling for a very long time was one of the major ways of pushing out your particular project, whether it was an IDO, ICO, like a launching of a coin. And that means going into different communities at scale using bots to basically smash people in the face with your messaging. And to some degree, there was elements of that that were effective. And that shouldn't have been the case. You know, there's this old expression that I love that Gary Vaynerchuk kind of coined, which is marketers ruin everything. And I genuinely believe that's true to the extent of, you know, it's kind of this cat and mouse arms race where certain things only work for narrow windows of time. But once you uncover that, that kind of gap in the armor, you exploit that to the utmost degree in order to push your client, your project, whatever it is that your message is, in order to get the attention needed to hopefully succeed. And you could have the best of intentions behind these efforts. Or you could be nefarious in nature. And that's the challenge right now, especially with a unique system that has brand new channels that most people have never touched before and different types of messaging that in the old days was considered inappropriate or not business related at best. You've nailed it. People dislike marketing because it works. And yeah. they don't like the feeling that they've been played. I'm trying not to let everyone know that I'm a lawyer, but. When I was studying law, <laughs> I used to look down at marketers because I used to think anyone can do that. Hmm. Naturally, I had no understanding of what marketing involves. But in more recent years, when I got into the startup world, I realized that, well, startup world and also just pursuing a bit of an interest in like behavioral science and psychology. And I realized so many of the things that were making breakthroughs now in behavioral science were applied in marketing 70 years ago, like anchoring and heuristics. There's so many things and there's even concepts that we apply in law school for negotiation and all these things have been done in marketing for decades. So I guess that once we've established that marketing works when done well, then you ask the question like, well, with great power comes great responsibility, said someone wise once. And then the question is, do we hold marketers to a certain standard to apply this power with great responsibility? And the truth is we don't. Marketers are here to perform a job. Somebody's paying them and, you know, they're like hired guns. So it really comes to the project. Who's paying for the marketing or who's leading this campaign? What is the outcome? 
marketers are just a means to an end. Is that a correct way to say it? I'm trying not to be too hostile to my guests. My background was in psychology. I had every aspiration of going into neuroscience, getting a PhD and continuing to do crazy clinical testing. And I got lucky enough to do two years worth of clinical testing as an undergrad. And it was super interesting. But then, you know, you get pulled aside by a nearly tenured professor and he's like, I don't understand why you're here. Like one of these does not look like the others. You are not like any of the other either grad, you know, grad students or, or you other volunteers. And I, I think it's probably because I came in hungover probably half the time. The guy more or less convinced me that this was not a field that I would be able to in earnest succeed in because it would take a good 20 years to really get through the education portion, all the grants, whatever. So I love the element of psychology because it plays into almost every side of business, especially within my field of marketing. So what you're describing is attribution bias. So it's the tendency to basically explain away somebody's behavior or characteristics based on a situational factor. So the situational factor is this is how marketing within Web3 works. Ergo, we assume that every person is an awful human being for using the determined channels of messaging that for right now, those are standard practices to reach lots of people, to try to stabilize the scaling of your coin. Like all of these things play into what is in earnest digital marketing within Web3. And to say anything otherwise, to say, well, I don't believe in that and I'm inherently good. And it's like, cool, then you will fail if you are using the oldest techniques that no longer work in this space. And I think a lot of people clutch their pearls and, and are like, well, yeah, but I, I want to do a good job. And it's like, well, so do I. But the game is continuously changing. And it's one of the hardest things to expose marketers to, which is, look, I didn't invent the rainy day. I just have one of the better umbrellas. If you don't feel comfortable with doing some of these things, then, hey, maybe this is not the pool for you. And some people really in earnest believe that they can do all of the same things without walking some very tight lines. And I haven't seen it in the wild up close because you have to have some flexibility. And, and I think one of my favorite books that highlights this is Ryan Holiday's Trust Me, I'm Lying. Has any, I don't know if you've read it, but it's one of my favorites. Basically, it was the guy that worked in PR for major brands like American Apparel. And those guys had all kinds of crazy stunts that in earnest, they were moving the right things in the right direction. They were creating lots of jobs, even in the US. And also paying very fair wages, but because they were doing a few nefarious things, they got a really bad name, like super bad name. But I don't know. I, there's lots I could go in on that. I, 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 I think it's an interesting subject on the last. Yeah, I like Ryan Holiday. For people listening, his first book was Trust Me, I'm Lying, which is fascinating because it's, I guess, the first half of his career. I haven't read it, but I've heard some interesting references, and I'm actually, it's piqued my curiosity enough that I want to go and pick it up. And in his second half of his career, he's now a stoic. Stoicism. Yeah. He, I never would have thought that. How crazy is that, huh? I love it. He found himself. I've read a few yeah. of his books. What's it called? Obviously, I can't remember the name of the books. Book. You forget the name. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the name of the book off the top of my head, but I do end up catching his videos all the time. I think the guy's really turned like a, a 180 type thing. It's, it's very, very interesting to see that up close. 
Yes, which is probably one of the just features of growing up and experiencing the world. And to something we mentioned earlier, the ability to reinvent yourself and really choose which path you want to go. But I just want to pick up on something that you've said, and I just want to clarify. We've established three different things. The first one is some projects have shit marketing. The second one is marketing works when implemented correctly. And the third one is there are projects that are kind of shady, but it is the project itself. So those three separate things may help us to create a matrix whereby we can have a really good project that has shit marketing. So they need to up their game. And then you may have a really bad project, as in maybe they don't add much value to the world or they're outright extracting from the ecosystem, but then they may have really good marketing. So I feel like we've spent about the first half making it clear that we don't like the bad guys much, but that marketing as a science and as a set of tools, like it is what it is. So rather than just hating on the, what's the saying? Don't hate the player, hate the game, and shoot the message. <laughs> More or less, yeah. <laughs> Get very pro-esque on this. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Yeah. So rather than focusing on those things, maybe why don't we try to focus on, okay, let's say that you're a legit project and you have really good intentions to the ecosystem grow. You want to improve your marketing game or you want to even, I feel like there's even like a lot of known unknowns here. Maybe people know that they're not like the best at it. <laughs> they just didn't even know what they're missing. And this brings my mind back to one of the forms, one of the many resources that you've shared with us with the marketing DAO, where you had saying a spreadsheet with a ton of categories for people to like place a type of content. And that gave me a lot of clarity as to Jesus, like content creation is a world of its own. And if you've got the content in your head or if your team is building something and you've got that raw ingredient to create content let's call the first step like the creative side the next step can be much more systematic you can have processes you can have terms to define things so maybe i'll let you take i don't know if you have like any concepts off the top of your head that you'd like to choose or maybe even just start to see which areas would be in most need for people in web3 to start thinking about i'll hit a few different things because there's Again, so many different tentacles to go into just from some of those statements. The first thing that I, I want to address is the easiest project to, to market, the easiest project to scale is when it's a great product. And I've been lucky enough to see thousands of products, whether it's within SaaS or it's in Web3, that can't get out of the gates because it is a low need, poorly constructed thought that somebody immediately went in and started building. And I've done that myself as somebody who started six different companies and three of which were gigantic failures, gluten-free VIP, uh, like a food app, like for food allergies. Yeah, I know. I can see your face. Like I should have had that face looking in the mirror, but. But I'm intrigued. Do you have any food allergies yourself? No, but my co-founder did. So that was. Okay. Because there's two things there. The first one is normally they say scratch your own itch. Normally when you try to solve a problem that you yourself have experienced, 
you have a lot of raw materials to play with. So I wouldn't judge somebody if they tried to create something to at least cater for the needs and assuming that yeah. there are more people out there. And the second one is, I don't know in Denmark, but in Australia, every man and their dog now is gluten-free. And <laughs> so I would imagine there's money yeah. there to be made somewhere. So anyway, we've established that it was an ultra failure, but. <laughs> right. And then some. But I, I didn't take the time to talk with customers that were desperate to get something like this. You know, the, the Y Combinator folks do a really good job on focusing on the product early within their accelerator and is somebody that is trying to get his accelerator funded and was very close within the Near Foundation. I can assure you that product comes first. It is so powerful. And one of the things that needs to be baked into the product are viral loops. Viral loops, in essence, are ways that people can almost automatically or effortlessly share this and get them passed along in more automatic ways. But also the concept of the product is so simple that people feel compelled to bring it up to other people to be like, hey, you guys should check out this thing because it does da, 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 da. That's it. If you have the ability to have people share without being tasked, there's no reward system. They're like, dude, I found this fucking thing. Like some dude will get in his car, drive to you and take you to another place. It's like, for real? You know, and yeah, you don't have to deal with a cab driver. It's fucking amazing. Like those are things that if you have a product that you can bake that into it, man, you got something as opposed to trying to fight tooth and nail for every single hill. It's so interesting watching marketers that spring out of these where it's like, yeah, I'm fucking amazing. It's like, dude, because you were working at Airbnb or you were working at the SaaS tool that everybody had been asking for for years. You're not the amazing marketer. You have somebody who's the amazing product builder, but nice that you get compensated for that. I am so envious of people that get to to market these really cool projects. By the way, if you got one for me, I'm always down to, to hustle. <laughs> amazing. People often think that if they don't do marketing, because whatever they're doing, product or engineering, they can just outsource it. And it's funny because I think that on this call, we have both sides of the coin, whereby the truth is, I feel, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'd say 98% of the marketing agencies, they're going to turn you down if you're willing to pay. But the truth is, they are so limited by what you give them. And if your product is shit, they'll be like, look, it is literally not my job to build your product for you. And no matter what you do, marketing wise like i could have a sex day with kanye west and this product <laughs> this is not gonna go anywhere so that takes us <laughs> is that a good example yeah no this is getting good i like yeah, it. Going. Good. Yeah. yeah so yeah that takes us to the next step with it which is the viral loops and i love it because i feel like in some ways especially younger people not to say that we're old, but we're not the youngest either, you know? <laughs> I feel like younger people, they're actually becoming really good at internalizing these things and at least being able to identify when something is missing. Like I was doing some UI, UX stuff before, and it's hilarious. You, you show something to a 14-year-old, they'll tell you immediately what's wrong with a website. They don't know anything about the principles of how to build a website or how to do it right, but they'll tell you what is wrong with it. Because in general, we have a really high standard. We expect things to be usable, to be simple, to be straightforward. And I guess that if we were to translate, what would be a viral loop to the Web3 world? We may think of something like, say, DeFi. 
okay, cool. You found a platform with farming and farming that is going to give you a thousand percent. Variable there would be something like a button saying, hey, invite your grandma to come make a thousand percent with you. Something like that. Yeah. Like we've always had a challenge of enabling crypto people to break out of the crypto world. And this is something that really hints at what I really wanted to get to, the simplicity element. To me, there's two types of simplicity. There's a simplicity of the user is able to explain it in their own words to someone. I guess that would be like the value proposition simplicity. Why am I excited about this? Why I think you should care? And then there is the simplicity to onboard someone of what the product actually does. That one usually lives within the product UI. If my grandma, I mean, both are dead, so that's an awkward example, but <laughs> if someone that I refer to this application. Dad for zombie but, grandmas. Yeah. Hey, you know, a minute of silence there. <laughs> if somebody that I refer to these applications eventually makes it to their website, is the copy clear enough? Is the explanation, is the user flow so that a total new beginner can be onboarded? And here is where I think that Near as a protocol has been doing a lot of work. We have UX built into the core. Yeah. We have the simplicity principles. We're giving a pretty good tool set to builders to incorporate and work towards this. So yeah, at least that biggest hurdle to overcome, which is a technical one, we don't have, or it's been significantly diminished. And once again, it puts us in a very hot position because in other ecosystems, they've had technical constraints for a long time. Even if you design a perfect UI UX, you just can't implement it. So it forces us over on this camp to be like, look, we understand that this is what they do in other places, but we can do better and we can do more here. I think that we're, we're going down a nice path. There's a lot of different areas there to hit. And the first one, I'll go a little bit against the grain and then and weave into it. So when I did my launch event for Near Nordic and Layer 3 Ventures, my goal was obviously to get a lot of people to come to the event, but I knew given the statistics that I had looked up on Denmark, the amount of people that possess some type of crypto asset, even now, is still well below 3%. So the majority of people don't have any understanding or connection to this industry or field, even though it's definitely in pop culture and it's being referenced across either social media or even their news. So it's there. One of the areas that I think we often end up seeing, especially with early technology, is the only people are really that are that into it are on the fringe. And this happens as, as more people start to understand the value and what it is, it's less or not entirely all developer driven. And there's this really great quote that I pulled out of a podcast. I could send you the link to it, but this guy goes on for like a three hour rant. So it's a really short one, which is basically... This guy's referring to why developers are not going to be the problem solvers entirely of Web3's challenges and ultimately the integration within larger B2B and even B2C products as a whole. The quote is, because they understand one very complex thing, programming within cryptography, that all other complicated things must be lesser in complexity and naturally lower in the hierarchy of reality. It basically means because you can figure out a really, really complex system 
And obviously you need years of experience in order to do that. It doesn't mean that that's immediately transferable over to the shipping industry for logistics or healthcare and being able to normalize millions upon millions of data sets because you can code, get off your, your fucking ivory tower, bro. You are out of your mind. These are such complex problems that you need to pull in you need, like the Tin Man, the, the Lion, the Scarecrow, but you need to pull in the experts within that industry and give them the base level information in order for them to understand it. User experience is the difference between somebody getting onto your app and consistently using it over time and it never being looked at twice. And I think onboarding is probably one of the bigger challenges because there is an instant knee-jerk reaction when everybody comes up to a screen where it's like, what's a wallet? I, I don't even know what this is. Grandma's out within the first second. That's a challenge. And there is an element of society that needs to mature to that level. But there's also an element of expectations that need to be met on the user's behalf. And I think we're a long ways out from being able to do that. I've looked at hundreds of, of Web3 projects. And as you've already noted, one of the bigger challenges is user experience. There's this great story about Elon Musk when he set to disrupt the and anytime you reference Musk, people are like, eh? but when he set to disrupt the automobile industry with electric cars, he was like, okay, we have to make them more fuel efficient. We have to make them look cooler and we have to make them able to navigate the world in such a way that nobody has to actually worry about driving. If we can hit all of those fields, you would feel like an absolute idiot to, to overlook the EV industry because it does so many things that are inherently broken or not quite great. If we can harness that within Web3, and it is absolutely feasible, you break the system. Grandma gets on when the experience is so good that she would feel ridiculous going back to the old way of doing things. And I think that's one of the, the areas that is obviously the biggest challenge within Web3 marketing and Web3 product building, as I see it. That's really good. Actually, I, I love that you bring up that Elon Musk quote because it may actually serve as a really interesting benchmark to measure ourselves against. He he had a very accurate, actually, perception of something that the existing EV industry got wrong. And to some companies' credit, like Toyota, they had been working on hybrid vehicles for a long time. I think that we were making progress slowly. The challenge was that people weren't buying those cars. It was a very specific type of people. You could narrow it down to the color of their hair <laughs> <laughs> that were buying Priuses. And he's like, I want to be a normal person <laughs> that drives an electric vehicle. How can we make this be something that is desirable and desirable by the masses? And he was very strategic. Not only do we want it to look normal, we want it to look sexy. Can we make it look premium? Can we make it stand with pride? Like, yeah, I drive totally. an electric vehicle. And that is actually quite a challenge in a statement in a country like the US where they have like these biggest fuck trucks and they just like consume a lot yeah. of uh, petrol as a statement. Elon got that one right for sure. And I'm wondering, is there an equivalent to the Prius? on Web3 now. Like, to me, it makes sense that when you look at the adoption curve and, and to reference the numbers in Denmark, 1% are builders and a couple of the percent are early adopters. And then if you go, you go the early majority, late majority, laggards. 
it would make sense that we're in that very early stage where maybe only the people building half crypto or that they've got that builder mindset. But what I'm wondering is, do we have a Prius? Are there any perceptions? Is there anything that we're projecting to the outside world that means that unless you fit a certain stereotype, you wouldn't even consider going into crypto? Because I've discussed ad, no ad nauseum. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word. I've discussed at length on this podcast the vision of Web3 and the decentralized world, starting with the Bitcoin white paper back in 2008. And we've discussed at length the problems in the world, the very current problems that we're trying to solve. But maybe what we have is not a philosophical or ethics or vision problem. Maybe we've got a marketing problem. Am I the problem? Are, are we projecting something to the world that is inherently exclusionary? Interesting. Yeah, I think you need to take more of the economist's perspective of this situation, you know, and it kind of goes along with the Elon Musk thought behind this. But if, let's say I had all my money tied up in the US, which I don't, I would be basically down by 10% with everything that I could have potentially kept in my US bank accounts. The question is, at what point do people come out of the woodwork with pitchforks and torches? not in like a class kind of divide thing, or maybe it is, but when do people get riled up enough? In marketing, this is called brand switching. So people switch brands for all kinds of reasons, whether you went from MySpace to Facebook or McDonald's to fruits and vegetables or whatever your version of that was for anything that entered your life. And in many cases, it could be because of low value to money ratio, bad service, outdated technology, your needs might be shifting, or you just want to try something new. We see this shift often happen at scale when there's giant plummets of the economy. So like in the Great Recession of 2008, all of the really big winners came out because they were giant savers of money or opportunities for people that had small versions of assets, right? You have Airbnb and Uber. It's like, oh, you have a car or an extra room? Go for it. Run it out. Go fucking nuts. Or Groupon or Square. It's like you want to be your own little like business, like you have your little stand-up bakery, go for it, or whatever the case is. I think with the coming and the following through of the next recession, all of these amazing companies that sprung out of the 08, 09 kind of plummet, I think are going to be the use case for the web three versions that end up popping out of that. Look, the reality is up until May, 78% of the liquidity that was within anything web three related was within layer one, which means everybody's just speculating like, oh boy, I hope if I buy today, it'll be worth more tomorrow. Like that's fucking crazy. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. And I do think that near is probably one of the most focused systems that is trying to build utility into this. Give people the actual systems that they can ride on. If the roads already exist, which I believe they do, and we have layer ones as the infrastructure, somebody's got to start building the cars or whatever destinations are on those roads. Otherwise, nobody's going to use them. And I think we're getting closer, but there needs to be a bit of a washout throughout a recession for people to see, oh shit, I can get 10% on anything I stick into this liquidity pool, like now I'm, I'm interested. And it's that first step among many. By the way, have you seen 
haven't read the whole thread, so I'm sure there's some good observations there. But have you seen the latest post on the governance forum, the state of NFT on near or something? No, no, I need to read this. Now I feel ill prepared. Well, uh, I'll, I'll give a very brief overview. I haven't read in depth myself, but basically, as a few elements of that jump at me, the first one is that it's coming from a very well standing member of the community, the creator of Antisocial Ape Club, one of the largest collections. Mm-hmm. Well, they basically say that the NFT space is suffering and he's proposing to create an NFT fund to basically support NFT projects. And as expected, a lot of comments on the thread are maybe some of the problem is that there's a shit ton of scammers out there and there were a lot of mints. Bear market yeah. is tough. Like people are just generally a bit more tight with money because they don't have any anymore. And... Uh, yeah, I think like we're trying to find that midpoint where community is important, NFT projects can drive community. How do we preserve that? While also acknowledging that just throwing money blindly at this, what do you call the, the bird that eats on carcasses? Vultures? Yeah, on these vultures, probably not the best approach. For the sake of people creating NFTs for the sake of creating NFTs does not move the community forward. Donnie from the Neonauts posted something really funny today, which I, I agreed. He's like, hey, guys, just so you know, doesn't really matter which NFT community is the loudest. We all have the same members. <laughs> Interesting. I like that takeaway. And it's true. Anyway, what I was trying to get at is, if I tell you that I've got prime real estate, how are we going to build a sick-ass city? You know, we, we read Balaji's book. <laughs> I was going to build an insane city. It's going to take five years, at least. The question is, first, how do we get all the talent required to build all the components to the city? Plan it out, design it, sewage buildings, etc. But also, how do we keep all excited about the city? Like, we need to collect deposits or sell parcels of land before the city has been built. So maybe we throw like a music festival in the air. Maybe the music festival is completely random to the goal at hand. Like when the city is built, there won't be any music festivals or perhaps it won't be the core focus, but we're doing it now, maybe to get our name out there. And I feel like maybe that's what NFTs are doing now. I just listened to the Ilya, well, I'm about halfway through the whiteboard session where he lays out the vision for Nier and he, and he breaks down all the layers and what needs to be built. And what is clear is it's very early days. I feel like we're creating a really nice early community of people that subscribe to that vision and are building towards it. But I guess that if we have that shared understanding that it's early, then it may be possible to identify all these different groups and areas of activity that will be happening in parallel, but maybe on different timelines. So for instance, not everything that gets coded and pushed to main it, it's meant to be like a YC combinator type of business. Right now it's a time for experimentation. Let's have heaps of hackathons, push your code out there. It may be ugly. That's fine because we're on the developer training onboarding phase. Let's just be clear of that. <laughs> If you ever want it to become the YC Combinator app, you're on a different lane. 
completely different lane. How do we define when do the marketers and when do the UX and the UI people come in? You know, when do we bring in the users? Like some things out there are so experimental. We are, I feel like almost deliberately not putting them in front of people just yet. <laughs> but the question is like, well, where, when do we bring them in? Like, when do we start having conversations? Does that framing make sense? Yeah, yeah it's, it's the right question. And it's a very fair question. The products and the user experience of the early days of social media are nowhere near what they are in terms of how advanced they are now. I mean, if you think back to maybe the first time that you got on Facebook, the type of messaging that you would post on, on people's walls is so far removed because we had no idea how to act, you know, like nobody had a framework of like, this is cringy because that, that word didn't even exist, you know? So we're at, Run. <laughs> we also had no idea that we were going to get canceled. <laughs> yeah, true. That's so true. Oh my God. I, I actually have to nuke my Facebook account because <laughs> I, I think I used to be funny. <laughs> Law school killed something inside of me. Now I'm just like an empty shell walking through life. But yeah, I used to post some outrageous shit on Facebook. And everybody it's, did. It's funny because a lot of that, I can actually see like my cultural transition from being like proper Venezuelan, like first years in Australia. And then you start to make the transition and you're like, oh, okay. You know, there's a, there's a different way of expressing yourself. And yeah, that's endearing. I like that. Yeah. There's just a problem of communicating to someone like one-on-one. -on -one as you would in a private setting, like your friends, and it being on a bloody wall that everyone can read. <laughs> yes. So yes, I agree with you. I guess that we've evolved. Yeah, but that took the better part of, well, more than a decade for us to kind of establish without necessarily all publicly saying these are the 10 commandments of social media, of what we do and don't do. That that took a really long time and the vernacular of everybody also changed. This was like before a time where influencers were a thing. They were called fucking celebrities and they got into movies and television shows. And those are the only people that we knew of. Nowadays, if you look at the average, because I have a lot of interns, the average intern doesn't give two shits about any real celebrity. They're like, I like people that post their own content that I follow on various channels. Those are the people that I can I can see as my celebrities, like, which is super interesting when I ask people like, what's the most famous person you've ever met? And it's like, oh, they have like 200,000 followers. They're awesome. And it's like, interesting. That wasn't the case that long ago. We're going to see shifts like that within Web3 as well in terms of the way that we engage with this technology and how it interacts with us. By the way, I think it is hilarious that just as you mentioned your interns and what they do and care about, just in the background, like over the window, I, I could see somebody with like their phone and like showing something to someone on their phone. <laughs> it was amazing timing. I think you were like out of the frame when I exported. So we're not going to dox your interns and their lack <laughs> of oh, they're fine. work. It's crazy because we're one hour in. I'm, I'm bloody the worst host ever, but. <laughs> All good, man. We can jam out. I got time for you. I'm really curious as to how did you become the 3% of Denmark who have crypto assets? I'm reminded on a very regular basis that I'm not one of them. 
And that does have its various degrees of, let's just call it like self-reflection, but also like it, it turns up the motor within me. And so it's like this very small homogenized glove shaped kind of peninsula that juts out of Europe. And you'll find that most people here are extremely friendly, are, are wonderful folks, and their rate of adoption of new technology is, is one of the highest within the world. But they need to see their own people that they recognize. They need those guys to basically shout from the rooftops like, hey, this is something that we do. Because as soon as your boy with his very American sensibilities and way of speaking steps in front of them, it seems like that's same, same, but very different. That's not one of us. And I think you'll start to see also the shift that comes from the top down when it comes to regulation. So Scandinavia, the Nordics in general, are big on taxes. The biggest employer of Denmark is the government. And you also see that the Danish government has no idea how to legislate this. So there's business barriers, but there's also the cultural mindset of until one of our own or more of our own are talking about this, it's an us versus them type of idea. That's your thing. We're us. And I've found that to be exponentially true of this country. If you look and you could do a Google search, there's like best countries or hardest countries to make friends. Like, look it up. There's an infographic and it's fantastic. And for whatever reason, the South of Europe, like it's all green. Like everybody's great at making friends and people love, they'll walk across the street and crazy traffic just to shake a hand and say hello. It is the fucking opposite here. How did you land in Denmark in the first place? How long have you been there for? What's, yeah, how did you end up in that corner of the world? It normally falls into one or two different situations. So one is you fall in love with a girl or a guy, and the other one is for work. And I had failed my most recent startup. Uh, I was at the Washington Post. I had quit my job and went to go work with a guy who was running a Drupal development firm. And I thought this was going to be our next big thing. And nobody really uses Drupal anymore, but also the guy was a total asshole. So the reality is I made a mistake, begged for my job back, they gave it back. And I had a chance to go visit Europe for a friend's wedding. So I took all my vacation for the year, 10 whole days, and two of them, two and a half, I spent here. And I was meeting with people and nobody here seems stressed other than me. Like I'm running at like 10,000 RPMs, but I talk with some of these people and I'm explaining my background and they're like, oh, cool. We're in the startup scene too. And I'm like, no shit, you guys got a startup scene here. Well, uh, I took my vacation for the year. I'm just trying to get situated. And they're like, so you're out here for five weeks. And I'm like, well, who gets five weeks? And they're like, well, I get seven. And, oh, I get six. And I'm like, no fucking way you get more than a month off. Nobody has that. Nobody had told me as an American that that's a thing elsewhere. Why would we know that anyways? I had no concept of work-life balance. And I was immensely envious of people that had that. So after I got back, I, well, I told the people before I left, I'm like, I'm going to be out here less than six months. I'm coming. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see you. I had basically gone into full-fledged job search mode alongside continuing to try to put in work at my existing job. But obviously the focus was out of the system. Yeah. Four months later, I had a job offer in Vienna, Austria and one here and uh, took the job and started working as the head of SEO and optimization over at a company called Plan Day. That is an amazing story. I was 
hoping that at some point you'd be like, and I fell in love, but <laughs> no, I guess it's, uh, yeah, it is what it is, right? To be fair, I, I'm no day at the beach, but out here, I'm, I'm kind of this unique character compared to what the status quo is. So I think my dating life went up exponentially. I think my career went up exponentially in DC. I was one of like 500 people that do what I do out here. I'm one of five, you know? And so like it, it does create this super interesting dynamic. And yeah, of course I have now found somebody that I'm crazy about, and we've been together for nearly five years. She's Italian, speaks five different languages. And it's just one of those things. I'd never find that back where I came from in Washington, DC, not a chance. So, you know, it has happy ways of working out and that's just life in general, right? It is. It is. I can relate to some of it, although I'm still single, sending sure. a message to the universe. Yeah. But I guess the message is go to where you're a tent. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Like in Venezuela, I was like, just another one, you know, just another Alejandro, you know. Yeah. Here, I'm like, surprised. I don't know why some people get offended when they're called exotic. I'm like, yeah, I'm exotic. Dude, I went That's to the right. east of Europe. I was like exotic, rare, you know, the rarest <laughs> of all them NFTs. Like I was afraid I was going to get kidnapped and, and, and sex trafficked, but <laughs> no, 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 not that badly. There's this thing out in the Nordics, it's it's particularly in, in Denmark, but it's called the Law of Yenta, uh, Yenta spelled J-A-N-T-E. And it basically, in essence, means like, don't stand out, don't do things in a personal way that would put a spotlight on you or give people a reason to acknowledge you. We're all one. And therefore, if you try to stand out, whether it's in business and in life, it's, it's a negative. And that can be pervasive across an entire society. So there are big differences between more communal cultures and individualistic cultures. And I think going between those gives you a lot of time for self-reflection and for anybody that's listening that hasn't traveled and seen that, I, I think you just need to stay in, in a different place for long enough and start to pick up on those things. In Denmark, you do not get approached by strangers. It does not happen. And I remember the first time being back in New York City after being in Denmark during COVID and all these things. And I, I caught myself like knee-jerk reaction, kind of like, as somebody from one table in a cafe leans over and goes, ma'am and he's like this giant biker guy obviously he's with his boyfriend and it's this old lady and her husband he's like ma'am you have to get this goat salad it will change your life and i'm like oh yeah i forgot like people engage with each other it's fucking life it's fantastic i miss elements of that in societies that kind of embrace that type of thing it's always interesting to go between them and see like how far removed you are because you just pick up those cultural norms as you you settle into places I do want to embrace that traveling aspect. And there's a few things there. I feel like the migrant mindset just keeps you on your toes, like never takes things for granted. And it's funny that you mentioned that Yal Yalta, we have something similar here and we're not Nordics. <laughs> Interesting. Here they call it tall poppy syndrome. Basically, if you are the tall poppy, like you stand out, people are just like, they don't like that. So you got to cut it and bring it back down. The vast majority of people are comfortable with what they have. I mean, even if they're not, their life may actually be shit. But they just don't want to risk changing for the better. 
And I feel like the knee-jerk reaction is we don't like people that make us feel inadequate about what we have. Or we don't like people that make us feel like we have to improve to match them. Like, fuck them. Like, who are they to make me look bad with what I have? So it's weird to see how this spreads in a society. But it is something that we should fight or, I guess, cultivate people's curiosity and ambition in a way. America's are good at it, even if it gets unhealthy. Like, you should have probably more than 10 days per year. <laughs> yeah, probably. I would agree with that. Probably. For the sake of mental health, why not? There's an element of kind of the startup life that weaves through this. And for those that are listening that are building and are founders, I think you need to be able to shed this impression that you give a shit what people think of you. A lot of people struggle with that. I generally, when somebody gives me kind of these snide, silly ass remarks on social media, and there are tons of them, like I was on a, I was on a reality show when I moved to Denmark called House Hunters International. And the comments on there, if I gave a shit, are the most, I, I would say, deep cutting and also hilarious comments I've ever read. Wait, what does this show involve? Do you go out there and try to find a house? Yes. So Americans love the idea without actually doing it of living abroad. And it's a show that's on the Home and Garden channel. So it's not like a dating show. I ended up getting on this thing and you go see three apartments and then you select the one that you like. I think somebody's ripped it off of the internet and posted it on YouTube and it's been up for a while. But the things that you take away from these, these comments, I had an absolute blast, by the way, doing it. It was a ton of fun. I was half drunk half the time. It was absolutely ridiculous, legendary. But if I let these problems, these, these criticisms keep me down, I'd never get out of bed in the morning. You know, and I, I think a lot of founders have that issue. Were there any perks to it? Did you get the apartment for free or something? No. You get a little bit of money. And every time that it airs, it's it's funny. I get like, I get people reaching out to me on LinkedIn that are like, hey, how'd you do that? I've always wanted to live somewhere in Europe. And it's like, okay, so fucking go. Start, start with going out there, seeing what you like. And you don't have to set aside that much money. And then people are like, oh, forget it. That sounds like work. And it's like, all right, then why'd you message me? Like, what yeah. <laughs> What are you trying to yeah. get out of this? Like, For people listening, and to be fair, um, 2017, 2018, I did have a crypto stash and I went around the world twice with my ever-expanding magic money. But a lot of my Australian friends who were depressed working at law firms and accounting firms, consulting firms, you know the type, they messaged me like, dude, like, what the fuck do you do for a living? Like, <laughs> how can you afford to travel so much? And I was like, I'm going to tell you how. There's a bus company called Flix Bus. And there's, that one's from Germany. And there's like an equivalent from the Czech Republic. I never paid more than 15 euros to travel between two major European cities. And that constraint forces you to be creative and resourceful and honestly it ended up being the best trip ever i went from vienna to st petersburg all the way through the east by bus i never paid more than 15 oh, no. euros and i stayed at some amazing hostels some pretty relic ones some were a bit more smarty vibes some were more digital nomad it was a bit of everything I never paid more than, honestly, 20 euros per night is like luxury. <laughs> so 
especially in the East. And that's when you realize it was cheaper for me to be a tourist <laughs> in Europe, traveling yeah. nonstop and eating out than to live in Australia. Just my rent and eating like groceries here, like I go to a supermarket was more than what I was spending in Europe. So at least for people to do it once in their life, to experiment, to leave a different culture, I would highly encourage it. And I think Denmark has a different currency, but mainland Europe or like any country with a Euro currency, 20% discount now right now, boys, come on. <laughs> it's a good way to look at it. That is also one of the really nice things ab about Web3. If you take a look at the landscape in terms of work and the future of work, the current biggest 50 companies or the biggest 50 companies of the last 50 years are going to look nothing like the next biggest 50 companies of the next 50 years. There is an inherent shift, whether it's the flexibility, the remote work, a lot of that is being led by Web3 companies. Like, go look up remote jobs, and most of them are coming out of Web3, with the exception of a handful of, like, really tech jobs. And I assume that there are people that are more on the developer side listening. But honestly, you know, I'm this far in my game where I never really needed to become, like, a full-fledged developer. I know how to play with APIs and automate things. But it's a far, far cry from somebody that can do, uh, you know, Solidity and uh, Rust and Golang and all these other things. But Web3 has opened up this really unique opportunity for people to get really decent salaries, but also travel the world and still feel like they're part of an ecosystem. You don't see that anywhere else. And that, that is one of the reasons why I love it so much and basically put all of my time, effort and energy from what I used to do, which was running my growth hacking agency into building this Web3 fund and also working with exclusively Web3 builders and startups and scale-ups. It's a totally different animal. Amazing thing is that as we can be anywhere in the world, then the question is, well, where are we going to go? And Lisbon is coming up as a good candidate. I think Berlin is a pretty strong ecosystem as well, although the weather is less inviting perhaps. I feel like Australia is the best of both worlds in the sense that I can hustle with an American mindset and I can be anywhere now through the internet, but the lifestyle here is really good. Problem is you have to commit. <laughs> like you're not an hour flight from the rest of the world. You're $3,000 to the US. If you want to be here, you really want to be here. I just want to maximize some of my youth <laughs> traveling before I'm tied down somewhere. I definitely get where you're going. I think the majority of people are in some ways threatened by change. And I think we all could relate to that. The idea of, of being just a startup founder and going into business for yourself, it's, I think the statistic that I read was like it's 8% of all people in developed countries at some point will try to run either a side business or work for themselves, which I thought was quite high. I hadn't realized that it was that number, but the majority of people have no stomach or no taste for this because it threatens all the regular routines and the things that we've gotten used to. And if you're into personal growth and development, I think the best thing you can do, and it's very stoic as we were talking about Ryan Holiday, is to put yourself through these uncomfortable moments in order to grow as a person. And 
I know as somebody that has seen, and I'm relating it back to Web3 because it is why I've thrown everything into this. I got to see when apps became a thing and I felt like I missed or caught the tail end of the boat. I felt like in the like AI kind of becoming like a real thing, I had missed elements of that because I jumped into the wrong company that claimed they were doing AI and it was bullshit artistry. Or I got into the world of Web3 just as people were pulling their money out and crypto had that first big crash or coin did. Now I can kind of see on the horizon, like, great, I have at least the foundations of a skill set. And even if I didn't, I at least have the foundations of being able to rapid fire pick up things that most people take weeks to figure out because I use so many different tools across so many different industries. And the reality is like a lot of it is super uncomfortable because you need to figure things out that most people don't touch. There's no information or very light information, which means you're going to make mistakes. That's part of the fun. and. Also part of the drive and why I dig this shit so much is because it is so fast to evolve and change. And all of a sudden there's a little widget that you can plug in and it finally works. And now I can get people to set up a wallet and I get credit for it. There's so many interesting things that are happening at scale, whether it's just in the near ecosystem or beyond. And it's baffling to me where it's like, yo, you don't get a redo at the end of this. Like there's no point where somebody goes, great, you did your 60 years of kind of work and maybe now you can retire and set some money aside, but all the shit that you wanted to do, yeah, like you're 60, you're fucking old and there's zero chance you're going to go out there and go do it. So enjoy. I, I see that up close so often and I think people either convince themselves that it's too hard or it's not worth it. It sounds like we're both on the same page. There are so many more benefits into getting uncomfortable whether it's in the field of Web3 and technology or just moving abroad and finding yourself. There's so many opportunities within Web3 and because it allows for so much travel, I think you draw in really interesting minds and personalities that probably never would have touched this had those two things not been a part of it. You make some really good points there. Perhaps the simplest framework that we can boil it down to is, are you enjoying what you're doing? Because the truth is, we enjoy building. I don't want to speak on your behalf, but most of the people that I am friends with that I've come to know in the near ecosystem and that I keep meeting every day, they enjoy building. And sometimes this could be detrimental. <laughs> Maybe we're building for building's sake, but we do enjoy finding the problem, deconstructing it, just like playing with the technology. We may not be the ones pushing code, but just to see how all the Lego pieces fit together. Like that's exciting for us. I think, I've been told, there are people that may get the same level of satisfaction from doing other things. I've got friends that are workaholics, like lawyers, and it is true that they don't get a redo, but they're not really working for the money. They spend the 10 hours at the law firm because they don't have anything else to do. That's just their life. And there may be people who really don't enjoy their work, but that is fine because it is a... Uh, predictable, sustainable way to get an income to then have the money to do what they do enjoy. They go, whatever, hiking on the weekends. So maybe they've got children, like whatever the case may be. Everyone can be in, in different buckets. And yeah, as long as you're enjoying what you're doing and you're getting that sense of satisfaction because, you know, the years just keep ticking away and a nuclear war could break out at any time. <laughs> you bring up a really interesting point. I can't remember the psychology theory behind it. It I know I'm going to get it wrong, but it's something similar to like sex and taxes, even though it doesn't have the direct connotation within sex. 
And the concept is basically you can imagine like what would be the coolest, greatest, most awesome job ever. And what you don't see below the surface is the 70 to 80% of the shit that you don't want to do. So there is no version of perfection or perfect job out there. I remember I was out with uh, my partner for the Lair 3 Ventures, and we had sat across from these guys at a real shit dive bar, like a place that you obviously don't want to necessarily go if you're ever trying to have a good time, you know? So we kept seeing people run up to the table and ask for like selfies and like just saying like a bunch of thank yous. And at some point I'm like, yo, dude, like who the fuck are you? And the guy's like, oh, don't worry about it, man. Like, uh, we just finished playing at this, uh, you know, this, this big hall. And it was like the biggest concert venue in Denmark. And I'm like, no, but for real, who are you? And I, I'm not going to release the name, but the guy was like, look, man, we spend roughly 250 days on the road. And I'm like, wait, so you're like a rock star and you're bitching about how it sucks to be a musician that's known the world over. People also look at startup founders or artists or actors, the same thing. Like, even if you're a really amazing writer, you still spend a lot of time on the road, shilling a book, doing public readings that nobody shows up for. There are downsides to everything. But the balance to me is does whatever this thing is, like, does this outweigh from a personal standpoint some of the other shit that you could be doing? And if the answer is yes, then I think you're on the right path. But it is very bizarre where people are like, man, it looks like killing it. Like, social media, you're building all this stuff. And it's like, bro, I work 12 to 14 hours every fucking day. And up until this month, I was working six days a week for the last three years. And prior to that, it was seven days a week. And luckily I have a, a decent partner that's like, I'm not going to continue to do this if Saturday is also a work day for you. And I've realized that there is some interesting elements and major upsides within this specific industry, but also the idea of being in this field has really helped me to evolve personally, understand what really matters in life. You can take the boy out of the sea, but you cannot take the TC out of the boy. <laughs> well put. No, unfortunately and you can't. Lucky for you, you can take the girl out of Italy, but you cannot take the Italy out of the girl. <laughs> Oh boy, don't I know it. You know, it's a good balance. There's a, it's a good balance. Yeah. There's a reason that some people enter our lives and are there at the right times. And she's definitely helped me through a lot of those things. I had some friends visiting from London or just outside of London this past weekend. And I'm working harder than most people put in hours out there. We have to ask ourselves, who is this for? Those that put in the time, effort, and energy where everybody is just trying to figure things out have probably the best chances of upside if you don't lose your mind in the process of doing it. Being a founder is not for the lighthearted, I guess. It's definitely not. Look, if you're doing those hours in Denmark and you don't have the money to buy property in Portugal, <laughs> something is off. I don't know that it's probably the taxes in Denmark, but... <laughs> No, I'm just chasing you. Look, I know exactly what you mean because it'd be a stretch to call this podcast my job, but it is certainly among the compilation of things that I spend time and do it. I don't, okay, okay, I guess I'm recording on a Monday, but I spend my Saturday and Sunday editing and I try to make it not work. So like I go to the state library and even though there's a really cool co-working space within the state library that I have access to, 
I've got That's the kind cool. of special pass and, you know, it's right. it bothers me in there. It's quiet, especially on the weekends. I still like to sit out with the students. It reminds me of my student days. You go there on a Saturday and you spend six hours just lost among the books and doing all the editing. And to be fair, I may have an OCD problem with the editing. <laughs> but yeah, I really enjoy doing it. I may be completely bullshitting myself, but this is something that I call timeless content. And mm. what I saw when we had the mini bull run in January is that in a very short time span, we had a lot of people enter the ecosystem and there was a lot of thirst and hunger for content. And they just started ravaging through everything that was there before they joined. And they were like, more, more, more. Why isn't there more? So I know that it may be quiet now, but I love that with each episode, you see the t numbers tick up a little bit. I know that people can go back and listen to these in November and it should still be fun and entertaining. Hopefully you want to have been deported from Denmark for all your racist <laughs> remarks. Yeah, right. <laughs> Taylor, I am mindful of your time. And there's two things that I really want to ask you. First one is your Web3 fund. And second one is near Nordic. Let's go into it. One of the areas that I've garnered the most joy of my career is working with people that give a shit. And it is really hard to find that in big companies that pay really well if you're coming in as either a consultant or you're working with them as a client. And with startups, you can see that people have put everything in their life, either on the side in order to laser focus and build something because it's personally affecting them. I dig that shit. And these are the people that stay late and continuously put in time, effort, energy, and in many cases, their own money in order to see that through. Where else do you get to touch that level of drive outside of like maybe professional athletes or artists? I admire the dude that built something from absolute zero, whether it was using a no-code app or he's actually an amazing full-stack developer that created something that never existed before that retains value and continues to deliver something in the way of things that people appreciate. That's fantastic. So getting a chance to work with close to 12 different accelerators over just the last few years has been awe-inspiring. And people actually reach out and they're like, dude, thank you. You just saved me $30,000 by showing me this tool, or you just changed the entire dynamic of us onboarding users within 30 seconds. That means something to me. So being able to give that, because dude, I burned years out of my life, years, by building things that people didn't want, by not using existing frameworks, by not knowing, like the unknown unknowns is just crazy big. There's just too many gaps in most people's knowledge. Now, I've banged my head against the wall with frustration by not knowing these things. So I feel like I almost have a personal vendetta to get out there and be like, here, you don't have to do that. There's a faster way. And it, like, it doesn't cost me anything to tell you. Like here, the challenge is that when you work with these lower paying clients, like it's just, there's no money. So the workaround is accelerators. My problem with accelerators is that over the last like three to five years, everybody and their mom has basically started an accelerator. And what you end up getting is guys and gals that come from management consulting, corporate finance, or something in the way of M&A. They've gotten really fancy MBAs from 
INSEAD or Harvard or Stanford, whatever. They've never actually built anything in their entire lives. So the challenge with somebody from McKenzie, Deloitte, KPMG, whoever your management consulting background was, those guys don't like me anyway, so it's not like we're ever going to be friends. But if you hire somebody from that firm, nobody's ever gotten fired for bringing in a McKenzie person in order to consult. So the thought is, well, I guess if you can do it for, I don't know, a large corporate, let's say mechanical machine company of sorts, then I guess you can do it for startups too. And it's like, same, same, very different. You have no understanding of anything other than vague concepts that were thrown at you on your first semester of MBA school to help support people that are trying to change the fucking world. So why on earth are you not letting people that are actually capable of building into the system to help construct things along the way? Sorry, if you can't tell, I'm super passionate about this. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I've been in so many of these different workshops and people come out after and say, look, what you showed us was probably the most valuable thing we got in the last six weeks. Do you do more of this? And the answer is like, yeah. So I got involved with Near during a conference last November and some of the people on the Dow said, hey, like we would love to get you involved. So that's how you and I met as I became an advisor and then a council member to the marketing Dow. That also led to some really interesting conversations with some of the folks on the funding team. I got brought out to meet some really high level folks in Paris. And it sounded like we were going to move on building a Web3 accelerator focused mostly on Near within the Nordic ecosystem. So that's Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland. And that was towards the end of April. And we had to line up a few things to get the first check cut. And then obviously, if you've been watching any of the news, mid-April was when Luna took a, a giant dip. And that meant that Nears, I mean, it's no secret if you look up on like coin market cap, you can see the difference in the total market cap of pre-Luna to today. And imagine basically losing $10 billion in the span of a few weeks. And I'm, you know, broken up about losing the chance to basically raise close to 10 million. Not really even remotely comparable. But that had given me a chance and I knew that there was a potential because everything within Web3 has, has a chance of not going the way you want. So I was building Layer 3 Ventures in the background, which was basically the fund to be paired with the accelerator near Nordic. So now the accelerator is part of Layer 3 Ventures. I genuinely believe after having worked with so many founders of Web3 projects that if they had some existing frameworks, they could at least get some very healthy pre-seed valuations in order to jumpstart what they're trying to build. Make no mistake, it is a race to the top. There's this concept called blitzscaling, and I, I, I've been lucky enough to, to meet Chris Ye, and I, I think he's absolutely brilliant, and there are some really interesting thoughts behind it. Blitzscaling is basically throwing an absurd amount of money in order to be the first and the very top dog. Like the old adage of first place is basically a new Cadillac, and second place is fucking steak knives. So go be first place or not at all. I'm in the stages right now of reaching out at scale using hyper-personalization, a few different enrichment tools, and a crazy amount of automation in order to reach roughly 400 investors a day across a few different platforms. And by and large, a lot of people are very intrigued about another Web3 fund slash accelerator. 
But the reality is people are really just, they're off center right now. They're not sure whether or not this thing is just a fluke, a flash in the pan, and then people will never actually invest in this space again because it turns out like there was nothing unique about it. And I think that is one of the bigger challenges that I'm running up against is people are like, this is really interesting. I think we should talk in Q1 or Q2 of 2023. And it's like, okay, well, we're in June. So <laughs> like of this year, where are we going? And I don't know. We'll, we'll see how things come out in the wash. It's been a really interesting experience nonetheless. Thanks so much for sharing that. I feel like we should have mentioned that at the beginning, but... If you're still listening, this is the real jam. This is where you get the value from the podcast. Those who persevere through two hours get rewarded. Um, <laughs> I don't want to put words or thoughts into your head, but I really appreciate you sharing those challenges, getting the accelerator going, because I feel like they add a layer of information that helps make a lot of sense to some of the stance that we've been taking with the marketing DAO. I've heard from other sources that we're losing developers, that we're losing projects, funding isn't flowing fast enough, the grants team is not flowing, the fellowships program got canceled. So those are the eyes through which I'm seeing applications that are just not up to standard. If we've been given the power and the responsibility to disperse up to $200,000 per month, I want to be funding either the best or nothing. It really pains me that an accelerator, that I'm going to be blunt, could have had 10 times their results than minor community projects through the marketing DAO has been put on hold, potentially stalling the ecosystem development, who knows how many months in advance, when we still have access to the community funds. And don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating for the marketing DAO funding to be stopped. And I think that... You and I, and most of the DAO really, we've taken a very responsible, time-conscious approach to funding and are delivering people to a position where it is fundable or just saying goodbye. But yeah, I feel like it's definitely relevant that, you know, <laughs> how come I'm not getting funded, but this bullshit is still going. If we're going to cut costs, we're going to cut costs across the board and be fair. Is that misrepresentation or no i'm 100 percent with you you know it, it was one of my favorite articles to write that i ended up putting out on my own blog for clintmarketing.com slash blog but it was basically companies that have spun out of recessions and it was taking from recessions as far back as like i think it was like 150 years or something absurd and you'll consistently see this as a signal throughout again, decades of research, which is those that invest when things seem like they're in their bleakest or in their worst, often are the ones that pretty much own or go from challenger companies to the number one company within a niche or industry because they invested when others were pulling back. And this happens in waves. The efforts that you put into sales and marketing they have this reverberation effect over months. You don't really see all of the effects, depending on sales cycles and a number of different initiatives. So if you stop right now, you're not going to see the negative effects for at least the first few months, but then it stagnates for a much, it's compounding. It's compounding stagnation for a much longer time. Most executives want to appear that they're taking action. So leadership says, okay, 
were cutting or halting all innovation projects. Like the last recession wasn't that long ago. I remember it crystal clear. But you see examples of this where companies that people are very aware of have done extremely well when doubling down during tough times. And that is the question of whether or not leadership believes in the organization that they're in or is just trying to weather the storm, hoping that they'll get a nice golden parachute at the end. So look at, let's say, Southwest as an, an example. So in 2008, 2009, they were buying up fleets when they were basically half price, and they became one of the biggest winners within that. You see Holiday Inn do the same thing. They took that time to basically update all of the rooms and a lot of the amenities with most of their hotels and shut down the ones that were obviously not scaling and had not scaled since opening. Best Buy went doubling down across all of their infrastructure, making every individual big box store a hub within an ecosystem that could instantly ship when people ordered online. Costco did the same shit. This is the time when there's blood in the streets and everybody's freaking out to maintain cool heads and say, business as usual, let's cut stupid shit that obviously never should have been started. Let's get rid of business arms that have no potential of major upside. And let's focus in on innovation. So when this thing is over, we're in a much better position to own the entire ecosystem as opposed to waiting for maybe an indication of the market in a sudden day. You nailed it in that last phrase. There is an extra layer to doubling down during the tough times. Not only are you doubling down, but you're able to double down with a newfound insight of what went wrong. So this is the time to be like, look, I'm willing to invest, but I'm only willing to invest under the new conditions that meet the new criteria. We know NFTs, most of them are a fucking scam. Do I support creating an NFT fund to keep handing out money from the foundation to all these scammers? Under very strict conditions. <laughs> but should we be funding like a developer's fund? Someone very well respected within the validator ecosystem. They've been pushing for a validator's fund. I guess it'd be a vertical a community funding vertical similar to marketing down. I listened to that and I was like, immediately, yes. Get the right people to run it. Get the right guardrails. I think we know enough now to get the type of structure going. I can see how now is the time to support developers that may have been, dude, most of them were relying on magic money savings. <laughs> they, they, they kind of wish left the three anarchists. They don't have employers. No one tells them what to do. They were relying on magic money savings and they were like chipping away, contributing 10 different open source projects. Like it's such a weird profile. And dude, I've spoken to many of them. They've got families, they've got a mortgage. You know, when shit hits the fan, it's not magic money time. It's cash in the bank every month, but you can't keep doing it. So anyway, yes. I guess what, what I'm going to is taking the lessons from the, the bull times and readjust but definitely do not stop the funding. I see it almost like a nuclear plant. Or even just like a normal oil. You stop oil production today, and in six months' time you realize that your geopolitical enemy of the last 70 years owns all the oil that you need to run your country. Well, guess what? You fucked up. It takes, yep. what, six years to get an oil going up again? A nuclear plant. Dude, what are you doing? Like, we can't shut down things that are going to, A, take a while to see the consequences, especially when it's a zero-sum game, and B, take a long time and much more money to get back up going. So anyway, I guess it, 
this is really where I'm put though. Yeah, this is something that we're working on a proposal now because I feel like we have a big responsibility on conveying what we're doing and that we are aligned on the lessons from the bull market and the new constraints of the bear market. We just got to make sure that we communicate to the foundation that the marketing DAO is in that trusted category of money allocators. Because I agree, like if we if we lose some of that steam, it's going to be way harder to pick it back up. But if we keep shipping during the bear times, when the masses come roaring back, they're going to find a much more mature ecosystem with better tooling, better apps, better community. It's going to be a party. It's the hope, right? The metaphor that I often use to explain this is it takes almost a mile and some change for a locomotive to come to a complete stop. And it's a lot more power that goes into getting it started back up again, moving at full speed. I definitely have genuine concerns seeing what I idolized as probably the most community-driven blockchain organization on the planet have the moment of kind of like uh, faltering, you know, and I, I hope that, you know, it's a hiccup because everybody's feeling it. I think the next few months are so important in terms of seeing like what comes out on the other end of this. I generally believe that Nier has the right leadership and I, I think they've done some really amazing things. So who knows? You know, it's wild. I don't know specific numbers, but at least they're very top. And I'd say a decent percentage of the Near Foundation today have been at the Near Foundation for less time that we've been running the marketing DAO. I've been there for a year, hmm. but you've been there for six months. <laughs> so it's an interesting takeaway. This is why I feel these conversations are important because the foundation is stuck in a very hard place of listening to the community that see the foundation as a piggy bank that they can just keep ransacking bullshit grants and applications. And I guess taking the leadership and putting in the structures that enable a healthy community to grow. And somewhere in the middle must be the people within the community that, sure, we're getting money from the foundation because it's fundamental to work. Funding can't stop. It's not binary. It's not like somebody was bad, hence stop money for everyone, or market conditions bad, stop money for everyone. But it is important for the community itself to be able to give feedback to the foundation, this is bullshit, this is viable, and this is our commitment. We get X, we're here for the long run, you know, make it easy for us to succeed. Like, I love not being on a payroll from the near foundation, but I also feel like in some ways I am an employee of the ecosystem and I've been very crafty and it's taken me uh, well over a year to find small pockets of revenue for everything that I do to be able to justify, sure. okay, I'm not fun employed anymore. <laughs> I am part-time here, grant there, sponsor there. That's something that I recognize not everyone has the flexibility or the patience to do. <laughs> like for me, it was easy. I was coming from university and I failed startup. I was very lean anyway. And I guess my commitment to crypto and just my excitement to come across near may be very unique in a life circumstances. Mm. We can't expect everyone to go cold during winter. No, but fortune favors the bold, you know, and, and that's one of the byproducts of, of being successful in this space is knowing that there are inherent chances 
with any investment, but also with any project. And one of the things that I've seen by working so closely with a lot of Web3 companies is I acknowledge this is where I want to be. I see the writing on the wall in terms of what the potential is to change not only just the general transfer of wealth across large populations, but also every transaction across different businesses and individuals exponentially for at least the foreseeable future until something new comes around. So I more or less put my company on the line. That was a risk. And that risk did not pay off. And I've already given notice on my office space here, sunsetting many of the employees that have been with me for the longest in an effort to really see this through. At the end of August, this space is no longer where I'm going to be working. And it's also that compounding interest thing where it's like, it took forever to get fucking desks and all the different monitors and laptops and all the stick of furniture here, here, and here. And the, you know, just the little things you don't even think about. And for all of the risk that I've, I've thrown into this, I'm still confident that things are going to turn out all right. And I know that there is so much upside in this space that while I may lose the battle, I have a pretty good potential of, of winning the war if I get in front of and around the right types of builders and people and investors. And that's the game that we have to play, unfortunately, especially when it's so new. It's a crazy place to be in. That is a fantastic place to start wrapping it up. Taylor, what a crazy, crazy journey this has been. <laughs> Thank like you for having me, man. I got us like it going for another hour. <laughs> I'm down to do that again down the road. There's just one thing that I wanted to mention before we go. Sure. For people that have listened to the full thing, there's actually a beautiful story arc. So we start ranting, literally ranting, about things that are wrong in the space and that we're obviously passionate about. But then we go into a more, I guess, like personal exploration as a migrant journey and the challenges of building a business. And my takeaway from that section is everything is fucking hard. <laughs> so I feel like towards the end, we come to a really good place. And I just want to say it explicitly in case it didn't come through in the conversation about providing all the business support that if people have the right intentions and the right mindset, it's actually an extremely supportive community. Like we're trying to raise a village, takes a village to raise a child. And while sometimes you do have to shout to drive the point home that everything is in honky-dory and, you know, rainbows shooting out of unicorns' asses, <laughs> it's just not the reality. I do think that it is a great community. It is growing. It has challenges, but I feel like we're well-placed to solve them, especially once we all come to that understanding of it's hard. This is the mission. This is the role that we all play. And I guess to that, we welcome more marketers like yourself. You definitely have like 17 more episodes worth of knowledge in there. I can now see why you have 100 pages worth of content. <laughs> Well, let's do it, man. Don't threaten me with a good time. I'm never shy to get in front of another person that knows their stuff and, and mix it up. I think we scratched the surface of a lot of different areas, but yeah, I, I think there's there's definitely an interesting arc to at least this conversation. And, and that's 
I'm glad you took that away. I, I think that's really interesting. You've had so many great experiences with the marketing DAO. And I, I feel like we came in just six months later, but we were learning so much, me and Lorraine, just from your experiences historically, as, as well as you know, the others that have come and gone. Super interesting stuff between you, Carl, Lorraine, myself, Elliot. Like, it's, it's crazy. It's a very unseeming, unseeming team. Yeah. Unassuming. I don't know what the fuck I'm trying to say. So yeah, it sounds to go nap again. <laughs> Taylor. It's been an absolute pleasure and we'll definitely have you on again. Beauty. Thank you for having me. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because, well, let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice. And you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.